And while they're going, if you turn to Titus chapter 1, and some who are very astute will say, what happened to Colossians? Let me explain what happened to Colossians. Thank you, Virginia. <laughs> um, so I spent several weeks in chapter 1. Uh, Seth spent a week on chapter 3 and is going to finish that next Sunday. Um, couple, not a couple years ago, last summer, I preached mostly on chapter 2, on baptism, so I, I didn't need to redo that. Then you get to chapter 4 and it's all like greetings and so forth, so not, not a lot of content there. I can't um, say a lot about Aristarchus and, you know, uh, et cetera. So uh, we're moving on to, to Titus, uh, which, is a, which is a great book. And if you want to follow along, I'm going to not cover a lot this morning in this text, but I want to give the context by reading about the first nine verses. Where Paul writes there, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in the common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. While we were in, there's actually the, the title, Servant, Slaves, or Sons. While we were at the Gospel Coalition Conference last April, Karen got a new Bible. And uh, this uh, is uh, CSB. Christian Standard Bible, and she, she really, really likes it, and it's got lots of margin space, it's got some good little articles in it. Not, not, it's not a study Bible per se, but she just loves the way it flows and, and, and reads and so forth. Um, but the CSB is the 2017 version of the HCSB, the Holman Christian Standard Bible, which in itself is not a very common translation, uh, not as common as NIV, King James, and, and some of the others. But they changed more than just dropping the H off uh, from the HCSB to the CSB because this HCSB, uh, one of the, I would say, the distinctive of the CSB is that they would take this Greek word doulos and most often translate it as the word slave. Now, this word doulos is, uh, can be translated either as servant or a slave. And that, that's very common. Uh, with Greek words, uh, like the word, Greek word for, uh, is a Greek word that can be translated either as encouragement or exhortation, which, you know, they're very different, are they not? Uh, like, do you want to be exhorted when you ought to be encouraged, uh, and, and vice versa? Uh, but they're very similar, too. They're kind of two sides of the same coin. And the context, the text and the context will help determine, 
Should this be encouragement or should this be uh, admonishment, exhortation? Uh, similar here, you've got the same word, doulos, sometimes translated slave, sometimes translated as servant. And for example, here in Titus 1, uh, you see the various translations. So, so by the way, fundamentally, I'm preaching on one word this morning, so it's a little different kind of a sermon, this word doulos, servant, or slave, and I'm asking the question, are we servants, slaves, or sons? But you see the, the variety there, three translations has, has servant of God, uh, two have a slave of God, and the NSB has a bond servant of God. Let me give you an example where it's very clear, everybody agrees that the word should be translated as slave. From 1 Corinthians uh, 7, we read, For he who is called by the Lord as a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called as a free man is Christ's slave. You are bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. But then you have in the ESV, which, by the way, all the pew Bibles in front of you are ESV, uh, they translate that word as bondservant. Now, the word bondservant is just really kind of a nice way of saying slave. It's a nicer, uh, more palatable, nicer-sounding word than slave. But, but very clearly in this passage, it makes perfect sense to translate doulos as slave because the context clearly shows Paul's talking about not just a servant, but, but the, the practice of slavery itself. He was called by the Lord as a slave, as someone who has a master, is the Lord's freedman. Um, uh, very, very clear, he's making comparison between somebody who uh, was converted when they were converted, they're actually a slave, and after their conversion, guess what? They were still a slave, but what he's saying is, fundamentally, you are the Lord's freedman. So even though your daily life, you, you still have a master, you're still in that level of servitude, uh, in your heart and soul, fundamentally, you are free in Christ, as opposed to the, to the person who, when he was called, when he was saved, he or she wasn't a slave, uh, he says, now you, uh, nevertheless, you're not in bondage to a man, but you are Christ's slave. And that's, that's going to figure prominently uh, as we go forward here as well. So very clearly, it can be translated as the word slave. And as we, we talk about that, slaves and slavery, which we're going to be talking about a lot this morning, uh, it's helpful to remember that slavery in the Roman world was very different than the type of brutal slavery in our American history and, and really all, all throughout the world, some of which still exists to this day, doesn't it? Sadly, it, uh, too, too much so. Uh, in the New Testament, in the Roman world, much closer to indentured slavery as opposed to American slavery. So it wasn't a race-based kind of slavery where uh, they were treated, uh, the slaves were treated worse than animals, right? That, that, that's the sad part of our history. Not all the time. Of course, there were, there were quote-unquote, if you can call it a good uh, slave owner or a, a more just slave owner and some just horrific ones uh, were literally, I mean, there's records where animals were treated much, much better than human beings. That's not the type. Now, were there, were there horrible things going on? Of course. But in general, that's not the type of slavery that the New Testament describes or was part of the Roman world. Uh, but we have to realize, which again is why the, some translations like the ESV will prefer the word bondservant over slave. Because as soon as we hear that word slave or slavery, we conjure up all of the most negative things uh, just pop into our mind. 
Uh, that's just what happens in our culture, and especially even, even politically, that's more charged now than it was two or three years ago. So as we do, I want you to know, first of all, it's different than that type of slavery, so, so I want you to try, to try to remember that and not be too burdened by that. Uh, but, but nevertheless, uh, at the same time, uh, these people were in servitude, right? Uh, they, they were in a, in a position where uh, some of them could earn their freedom. That was a possibility. There are actually Old Testament instructions to allow for that. Roman uh, Slavery in the Roman world allowed for that in certain circumstances, that possibility. But others would remain a slave their entire lives. Uh, so there's nothing good about any of that. Um, they're, they're still in involuntary servitude. Uh, whether you call it bond servant or slave, uh, it was still not a good place. And fundamentally, they were bound to their master by some kind of financial debt, usually a financial debt that they could never overcome. Which is why Proverbs 22.7 puts this very much into perspective for us in the 21st century. The rich rules over the poor, and the borrow is the slave of the lender. Now, I don't know about you, but I've all, almost always heard that phrase, the servant of the lender, uh, but I compared a lot of translations, and the vast majority of them actually had the word slave. Now, here we have, you know, we had a, a Greek word that could be translated as servant or slave. Here we have a Hebrew word, same idea, can be translated as servant or slave, and again, the vast majority of them, the, the translators said, you know, I really think it is an issue of, of slavery, is what the author intended. And how true that is, right? Uh, borrowing creates a form of slavery, and the more you borrow, the more enslaved you become. If you have a, for example, $100,000 in student loans and then a $200,000 mortgage, uh, the question would be, in what sense are you not indebted to those creditors, right? There, there's, a, there's a type of, of slavery to the lender. Now, I'm not saying, of course, that any kind of loans, however great they are, are anything like the slavery of our American history. However, I think the Bible intends to make it clear it is a type of slavery. It is a type of, uh, if you will, involuntary, well, it's voluntary servitude, you know, for the most part. That's the difference. But nevertheless, you're indebted to that creditor. And we know this because the Bible itself is saying uh, that's the case. Now, you know, 100, 150 years ago, if you owed people a lot of money and could have paid, could have paid back, where would you go? Debtor's prison. This, I mean, it's just as awful as it sounds. You know, it, it, was, it was a prison, you know. Uh, and how are you going to pay it back uh, when, when you're in prison? Now, I'm not in favor, generally speaking, for uh, filing for bankruptcy. Uh, but I realize there are extreme cases where, where it is a good thing. It's not, it's not a sinful thing. It's a, it's a good thing to get a person out from the horrible, burdensome debt that they're under. Uh, and understand, bankruptcy laws came into existence to eliminate debtor's prison. So they finally saw, this is just a horrible practice. It's not working. So that's how bankruptcy laws came into existence. So, so fundamentally, they were just laws. Uh, it, was, it was a very good thing. But now, of course, we see it abused, just like, like any other uh, law, all the loopholes, etc. Uh, but, but fundamentally, it's a good thing. But 
Unfortunately, it's almost impossible to file a bankruptcy on, on a student loan. So that's something that you're, you're saddled with for, for your whole life. Speaking of credit cards and such, um, at our, our old church, one day I went to the mail and uh, pulled out and I saw a credit card bill. I'm like, okay, open up the credit card bill, open it up, and just about lost my mind because the bill was almost $80,000. So I, I said to Karen, I said, what did you spend at Walmart last month? What's going on? I didn't actually say that, but um, I realized, you know, same credit card companies are, same bill, everything we get. And, and then, then I calmed down and I realized, oh, it's my neighbor's bill. <laughs> right? So now what do I do? All right? Now, first service, I think they about crucified me for what I did. So I'm not going to tell you what I did. <laughs> well, you know the dilemma, right? If I take it over to the neighbor, they know that I know they have an $80,000 debt. What would you do? That's what I want to know. I want to know after service, what would you do? I threw it away. I, I, I was too, I, I couldn't face that, right? I mean, I, you know, because I reason, they know they have an $80,000 debt, and, and, and certainly uh, the credit card company will, will send them another bill if necessary, but that, that was my example. So you can crucify me, because the first service crucified me too. Uh, but that, that's, that, that's what I did. But again, I want to know, what would you do? Tough guy. Uh, anyway, um, I think about having, you know, just think about having that level of uh, a credit card debt, $80,000, almost effectively impossible to pay off. I did the math. If you take the average uh, interest on a credit card, and if you paid $1,000 every single month, and you never again spent a dime on your credit card, it would take you 20 years to pay off that, that debt. So uh, just an incredible amount of money. And the Bible says that is a type of slavery. Having $10,000 in credit card debt is a type of servitude. I would argue that having $80,000 in credit card debt is itself a type of slavery. Now, what I want to do is, is step aside from the, the slavery-servant discussion. I want to say a few things about Bible translation in general, because we're already kind of wading into those waters, and I, I think there's some helpful things for, for Christians to understand. We've already seen how various translations will handle even this one verse in, in Titus chapter 1. And it's good to, to remember, as you open your Bible and read it, that there, there is some interpretation going on here. Uh, now, the vast majority of the time, this word means this, and this word means this, and it, it fits neatly and nicely, and there isn't a lot, any controversy whatsoever. But occasionally, even the best scholars are like, well, I don't know, it could go this way, it could go that way. So a translation committee has to make an, a decision that is, is an interpretive decision, do you see? So, so they're making those kind of decisions and then uh, translating their, their version uh, accordingly. So that's how you get that sort of thing. Now, let me say... Let me back up and say one thing about this topic of Bible translation. The most important thing I want you to get from talking about what kind of Bibles and how, how they're translated, et cetera, is this. That you would actually, whatever your Bible translation is, that you would actually pick it up and read it. Oh, man, huh? How's that for a wild idea? Uh, that's the main idea I want to get across is that you're using that Bible, that the Bible is not gathering get dust, that you're memorizing that Bible, you're studying that Bible, you're digging into that Bible. Just uh, uh, in between services, 
I don't have permission to, to say who it was, but uh, four uh, young people came into my office, and they had some questions. They're like, oh, man, can, can, can you try to answer this question? Uh, the softball questions, uh, they want to know, they wanted me to explain Trinity um, to them. I'm joking, not a softball question. Uh, the problem of evil, I've got 20 minutes, all right? I've got to handle the Trinity, the problem of evil, and the third question that came right at the end is, what about uh, a person who is born with both male and female genitalia? I'm like, oh my goodness, uh, you know, tough questions. But I love that kind of stuff. And here's what I love better. These young people, these questions came up because they were sitting around a campfire last night and we're, we're discussing these kind of questions. I love that stuff. I think it's fantastic. Um, so uh, may their tribe multiply. So whatever version you have, take it up and read it. Uh, matter of fact, that's how, if I remember, it just occurred to me, how Augustine uh, was converted. Uh, he was a, a radical atheist and just uh, living in sin uh, to no end. He had a faithful mother praying for him, and he's sitting outside one day, and he heard, take it up and read, take it up and read. Picked up uh, the Bible, I don't know where it was, as soon as he could, read it, was radically saved. Um, so power in the Word of God. But, but I do want to say a few things about uh, translations, um, and to, to start you off, I want to um, show this chart, and this chart was, you see up in the, in the top corner there, CSB, that's that Christian Standard Bible that I talked about before, that's Karen's uh, new Bible, and they produce this chart, so they have a little bit of bias, right, uh, no, no doubt, they're saying, hey, we're the best translation. Uh, but I'll talk about that in a little bit here. But if you see down the left column, that the left axis is readability. Uh, so the higher you go up the scale, the more readable it becomes. So, so do you see the least readable version there? Right? The King James, right? Uh, now, when I first got saved, the parents, uh, the family, who were most instrumental in leading me uh, to the Lord, gave me what was essentially my very first Bible, and it had my name printed on it. It was this wonderful uh, thing, and it was a King James Bible. So the first three or four years that, that I was a Christian, that's the Bible I had. Now, I look back and I say, man, I wish I would have read it a lot more. I did, but not, not nearly enough. Uh, but if I did, it was a King James Bible. In fact, there was some point, I think it was a sophomore year in college, somehow I said to myself, uh, I've got to memorize a couple verses. I've never memorized scripture in my life. So I literally flipped open the Bible, right? Have you ever done that? You know, uh, it, it's not the most mature thing to do. It's what kind of young believers do. And that's how I decided what to memorize. You know what I landed on? Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. One of the greatest Bible verses, you know, in all of scripture. And God randomly, not so randomly, uh, led me to that. Let me uh, put this up on the screen here in the King James. I beseech you. That's not in your version, I bet. Therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, that might sound really funky to you. Uh, it resonates very beautifully to me. 
uh, again, because that's all I had. It was the first Bible verse I ever memorized. Uh, but if you're not used to it, it is less readable. Everybody agrees. Everybody agrees it's less readable. The King James is a wonderful translation. It's very poetic. It's beautiful. Uh, but if you're a young believer, if you're a young reader, uh, the fact is it's just less readable. Uh, that, that, that's, just, that's just a fact. Uh, now let me show you the same verse in the New Living Translation. Let me back up to that, uh, that chart. You see that's uh, way up to the top, New Living Translation, up with some others. So here's a New Living Translation. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. What, what do you know is just by quick observation, what, what do you notice the difference between the two? Second one's a lot longer, isn't it? Specifically, 59 words versus 87 words, which I find is very typical in the more modern translations. They, they need to use a lot more words to convey the, the same meaning because they're, they're typically taking what's called a phrase-by-phrase phrase, uh, translation as opposed to a word-by-word uh, word translation. But the fact is, clearly, the New Living Translation is more readable than the King James Version. Uh, but there's another axis on here. The bottom, if you can read it, says literal. Uh, so what they mean is how literal it is, if it's word for word or not. Now, personally, I don't know if they intend this by this chart, but when I, when I think of what's more literal, I think uh, a little more accurate. That, that's not exactly what they intend, but, but I, I personally believe there's a little bit more accuracy involved uh, in that. And if you look, then... So those that are more to the right, from your perspective, are more literal, more to the left are less literal, and what's way over to the side is the New Living Translation. So one of the most readable versions is one of the least literal versions. Uh, therefore, I would argue, in some cases, uh, you could also say it's a little bit less uh, accurate uh, than, than the others would be. Now, I find this to be... Uh, uh, quite accurate, even, even though the fact the CSB says that, you know, they're, they're the most readable and the most literal uh, of the bunch. Uh, I think the way they've got it situated there is generally quite accurate. What I would do, actually, I would put the NASB is higher than the ESV in terms of readability. Uh, I find that as I'm, even though I have an ESV and you have pew Bibles that are ESV, if I'm studying through a passage, and I'm comparing the different translations, and if something is hard to read in the ESV, and I know Bible quizzes have experienced that, there's just some, some difficult ways uh, that, that things are worded, and I turn to the NASB, it's better. It's more preferred. So, so personally, I have just a, a slight preference uh, for the NASB over uh, the, 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 the ESV, uh, but, you know, this is not about censorship. You know, this isn't about saying, you can't read this, or you should read this. I mean, that, that does happen in, in some churches, which I think is absolutely wrong. So at the end of the day, I have a slight preference for the NASB, but there is a version I would alert you to, not censor it. I'm not going to look for it in your home if you have one and toss it in, in the fire. Uh, that's not my point, but I want you to be aware of it uh, as you read it, and it would be the 2011 NIV. 
So if you, you might have an NIV, and if you open the back and it, and it says copyright 1984, that's a really good Bible in my opinion. If you have the 2011 version, uh, then take note of a couple of things that I think are quite concerning. For example, this passage in uh, 1 Timothy 2, the, the 1984 version says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. Then if you jump to the 2011 version, it says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. Now, you're going to have to take my word for this, and you can certainly dig into it yourself because it's a, it's a very large, complicated issue. But there have been books and books written on this one verse. And what I am telling you is the fact that this 2011 version of NIV is what is an example of an interpretation of what is called egalitarianism, uh, which is sometimes also called evangelical feminism. Uh, and you've got, let me, let me explain the two, two things. I've talked about this before, but not for a while. So you've got complementarianism, which believes, uh, that, that's what I believe, that's what our church practices, that the role of elder and senior pastor are reserved for men. That men and women have uh, equal, uh, absolutely equal, but have complementary roles. Uh, in, 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 in Scripture in the eyes of God. But egalitarianism states that men and women are equal, but they're equal in role. So a woman could uh, hold the office of an elder or a senior pastor. Um, and what, what I'm telling you is that the word assume is not in the Greek text. Uh, it just doesn't exist. So, so they, they have taken a very loaded passage here and have turned this into an evangelical feminist interpretation. All right, even more than interpretation, because again, that, that word is not in the original Greek. Um, so uh, it's, it's very disheartening uh, to see that uh, being in there. A couple of less, uh, uh, not, not as bad, I guess you might say, but still uh, concerning passages would be this uh, from, from the life of David. It says, These are the names of David's mighty men. In the 2011, they said, these are the name of David's mighty warriors. In a similar way, uh, we have, uh, it says, uh, I promised David your father when I said, you shall never fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. The 2011 version changes it to a successor on the throne of Israel. So what they've done is they, they've taken a, uh, a gender-specific word and translated as a gender neutral word when the text and the context clearly necessitate a gender specific word. It says man, I mean, you know, there weren't any mighty women. Uh, there, there was never going to be a woman on the throne of Israel, so it's unnecessary to create a gender neutral translation there. Now, now I'm all in favor of gender neutral translations when it doesn't matter. For example, uh, from James 3, it says, For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. Uh, there in the Greek, you would see the word anthropos, uh, which is the Greek word for man. But clearly, everyone can agree, he doesn't mean, James didn't mean only men. He meant men and women, children, uh, human beings, in other words. So perfectly acceptable to use gender-neutral language when, it, when it's intended to be gender-neutral. But when the text demands it to be gender-specific, it ought to remain gender-specific. And what I'm saying is the NIV uh, 2011 
plays fast and loose with this gender-neutral uh, interpretation. Now, getting back to Titus 1.1, specifically the servant versus slave topic, my belief is it's preferable to translate the word as slave, uh, but more important than that, it's that we see ourselves as slaves of Christ. Uh, that's why I think it should be interpreted that way, because I think that's the way God wants us to see ourselves in that role. Let me give you eight brief reasons why I believe this is true. Reason number one, Paul refers to believers as slaves of Christ. We already looked at this passage. For he who is called by the Lord as a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called as a free man is Christ's slave. Uh, there it is in black and white. If, Jesus, uh, if Paul refers to us as slaves, we should not be afraid to own that title. Uh, related to that, Jesus bought us with the cost of his own blood, right? It says you are bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Don't, you know, this is similar to, to Paul's language in Galatians. Uh, don't become enslaved again uh, to the, the requirements of the law. Be free in Christ is what he's saying. But the point is, you were bought at a price. You were bought at a price. Now, we ought not to conjure up ideas of, of American and the worst kind of uh, slave auction where they're literally bought. Nevertheless, there's a purchasing going on here. Uh, there is a, a, a purchasing from slavery, from the slavery of sin. Sin. Christ is purchasing us, purchasing us that the cost of his blood, the cost of his precious life. All believers have been bought with a price. Thirdly, Jesus said that God is our master from Matthew chapter 6. Uh, Jesus said, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Uh, if you have a master, that means you must also have a slave, or at least a, a, a servant in a very strong sense. Uh, in our case, thankfully, we have an infinitely benevolent master who only and forever intends our good. Um, so that is the, the, the role that he wants us uh, to, to see ourselves in. Fourth, Paul taught that believers are slaves to righteousness. From Romans 6. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you are committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. You are a slave of Christ as a believer. You are a slave of righteousness. Um, and related to this then is this point. We'll always be enslaved to something so it's far better to be enslaved to Christ, right? Our hearts, and we're, we're, we're talking also about worship here. Uh, you will always worship something. What happened in Romans chapter 1? Uh, they're worshiping the crea creation rather than the creator. And God gives them over and they spiral downward and downward. Uh, they haven't stopped worshiping. They're just worshiping the wrong thing. Human beings will always and forever worship something. We will create idols of the heart. And that's how you get into things like $100,000 of credit card debt. You are worshiping something other than Christ. You're worshiping your reputation. You're worshiping finances and nice things, uh, whatever it might be. Your heart is vastly misdirected at that point. But you'll always worship something. You'll always either be a slave of sin or a slave of Christ. Far better 
to have Christ as our master in all that we say and do. Number six, greatest example of faith in Jesus' day was a Roman centurion who recognized Jesus' mastery over him. Remember that story, right? Roman centurion comes to Jesus and says, uh, Jesus, can you come and heal my servant? Uh, and, and Jesus was going to come and heal him, but then this took place. The, the centurion said, uh, no, you don't have to come. He says, for I too am a man under authority uh, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. So what's happening here? Uh, the centurion is recognizing that uh, he has really almost ultimate authority over his soldiers. I've never been in the military. If you've been in the military, you understand uh, chain of command. You understand what happens to you if you disobey the command of an officer over you. Even if they're just one level up from you, let alone if they're multiple levels up from you, you are in dire straits, are you not? How much more so, ramp that up about 10 times in the Roman world for a Roman centurion, if you disobeyed his commands, you, you know, your life could literally be at stake. Um, so he re recognizes he has almost absolute authority over his sh soldiers, and they do whatever he tells them. How much more so does Christ have absolute authority, not over just people, but diseases in, in all of creation? Uh, and, and, and Jesus says, that's the greatest faith I've found in all of Israel. And, and it's such great faith, you cannot separate the mastery over everything and everyone from the faith itself. So to have faith in Jesus requires us that we have this kind of faith in who he is. Uh, we must not make him, uh, Jesus or God, into our own creation, but we must only... Uh, Believe what Scripture tells us is true about him. Uh, number seven here. We can be a slave and a son at the same time. Now, remember my uh, title of this message. Servant, slaves, or son. Here, here's a great verse from Galatians 4. Therefore, you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. And some of you might say, well, why are you showing this verse? Because it's going against your argument, right? The, the Paul is saying here, you're not a slave. In fact, you're a son. Well, we have this, this kind of paradox. We have this tension in Scripture where sonship language is all over the place. Uh, that, that we are a child of the king. That we have a father who is infinitely good, who only ever wants our, our best uh, as we follow him. That is, not as we go our own way. Uh, and that this father-son, father-daughter relationship cannot possibly change. Uh, I saw uh, Ray Olson, many of you know Ray Olson, and about 10, 12 years ago, he went through this training called sonship training. Same authors that wrote the, I used that gospel, uh, the cross chart rather, uh, same authors that wrote that, wrote this sonship. Really excellent biblical teaching on what it means to, to be a child of God, identity in Christ. We talk about, about that a lot. And after Ray went through that, he was a different man. He has never been the same. He's leaned into that ever since uh, and gone deeper with that understanding of this intimate relationship between God the Father and him as a believer. Absolutely transformative, and I believe uh, the same can happen with everybody. Uh, but at the same time, 
as much as the Bible teaches about sonship, it also says we're a slave of Christ. We're a slave of righteousness. Jesus is our absolute master. And the fact is we can have both at the same time. Uh, you can be Christ's slave, and you can be this precious son of the Father. I mean, what does Paul say here? He says, I haven't touched on this yet, but he says, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, you and I aren't apostles in that sense, but, but he doesn't see any problem with that. He can be a slave of God and this leading apostle, church planner, uh, and he sees no problem with that, and neither should we. And the last thing, it goes very close along with this one, is that Jesus can be both our master and our friend simultaneously. Uh, we have in John 15, this passage, where Jesus says, You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that, that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. Now I might look at this and say, well, well here's another contradiction, right? Because he says, not only we're we not slaves, we're not even servants. Uh, let's get rid of that language and let's just be friends. Because that, that's what the Bible says. Well, let me ask you this. If you go back to the first verse, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Now, now hang on a second. Think, think about a really close friend of yours, all right? You know, I don't like, like, best friend, right? My BFF or whatever. Uh, just have a bunch of good friends, all right? Uh, you don't have to have the best friend. That's, that's, my, little, that's my little rant. But anyway, uh, a really close friend, do you do everything that person commands you to do? Tim, do you ever, do you ever, do you, ever now you, you actually do listen to me pretty good. So <laughs> maybe we have a twisted relationship. But no, seriously, that would be a twisted relationship, wouldn't it? If, 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 first of all, if your friend was commanding you to do something, and secondly, if you did everything the friend commanded you, that, that's a sick, twisted relationship. On our trip to Ohio last weekend, um, I listened to this podcast called The Shrink Next Door. And uh, it's, listen to it, it's, it's really fascinating, but it's about this psychologist and a client relationship, and this psychologist manipulates this man for almost 30 years, steals from him, uh, he literally does everything he commands. He tells him to do something, and, and, and he does it. Ruined this man's life, this disgusting, sick, twisted kind of relationship. That's not friendship, is it? So even though it says that you are my friends, listen, it's a very different kind of friendship, isn't it? Uh, very different kind of friendship. Um, so it's, what I'm saying is it's not mutually exclusive. We can still be Christ's slave and we can be his friend. We can be a slave of righteousness, a slave of Christ, but also this perfect, intimate relationship with the Father. Both can be set true at the same time because the Bible says that both of them are true at the same time. So the question is, are you a servant, a slave, or a son, or a daughter? The answer is yes, all of the above, beautifully, wonderfully, all of the above. Do you know, uh, and I didn't plan it this way, but do you know you already sang a song about slavery? I don't know if you caught that this morning. Um, this one. I will glory in my Redeemer, my life he bought, my love he owns. Isn't that great? Uh, I, I didn't plan that, but, but there it is. My life he bought. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, do no, no longer live as slaves. Would you stand? Let's, let's sing this last verse and, and chorus together.